Timothy as well. Hey, uh, last month I interrupted kind of a mini-series on revisiting the Beatitudes uh, to uh, trying to talk about how we might respond to the value them both uh, vote in the election. And I think it's clear at least to me that God is calling us to work harder at creating a culture of life. And while we know we're not saved by our works, we also know that our faith without works is dead. So uh, today we want to return to the Beatitudes to explore the attitude, the state of mind, uh, the, the, the compass that Jesus calls us to have internally so that we can know what and how to respond to the culture. In order to do right, we've got to be right with God. So I want to start today with a question. What is your goal in life? Think about that. Now, many voices will tell us today that our goal in life should simply be to have as much fun as possible and to die with as many toys as possible. And while, you know, preparing for the future and having fun are all fine, uh, it's not always possible, and it's not always what God gives to everyone. Now, whether rich or poor, after basic necessities, all of us make decisions about our time, our resources, our priorities. In fact, I would say that if comfort and leisure or pleasure is our goal, our primary focus, then we simply do not understand we have not appropriated God's purposes for us as believers. Philippians 3 says, uh, Paul warns us that the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, some versions say their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And in life, I want you to think about this. There are at least three basic questions that all people should ask and answer for themselves. One we mentioned last month is, from where do I come, my origin? Another is, where am I going, my destiny? But between those two, there's another one about my purpose in life. Why am I here? Uh, And if asked, I hope that we would all respond, well, our purpose in this life as believers is to worship and glorify God, enjoy Him, and to serve Him. But does my lifestyle reflect that purpose? Is my lifestyle any different than that of unbelievers? What do I desire most out of life? Why am I here? So the first beatitude that we're going to review today is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's Matthew 5.8. At least in a general sense, the goal of each believer in, is to order our hearts and lives in such a way that we see God. We'll get back to that. And if we see God, we'll be open to all the blessings, not only for life here and now, but also for eternity. But the key is a pure heart. Uh, This is the most central and significant of all the Beatitudes. You cannot be poor in spirit without a pure heart. You cannot mourn for uh, things that displease God. You cannot be meek. You can't be hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You can't be merciful. You can't be a peacemaker. You can't be prepared for persecution. 
uh, for the name of Christ without a pure heart. Now, the word pure is katharos, uh, cleansed, spotless, free from filth and impurities, no surprise there. But this is the word uh, that we have from which we get our English word catharsis, which is a purgative uh, for the purpose of cleansing out. And uh, uh, catharsis is a purging of the emotions and uh, emotional tension. Uh, so an issue we need to address up front here is whether anyone can be completely pure in heart. So in the absolute sense, absolutely not. Romans 3 reminds us that we've all sinned, we all fall short of God. And Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. So what's the purpose of this beatitude? This is not about perfection. It's not about self-righteousness or outward appearances. Rather, this verse describes those genuine believers whose inner nature has been cleansed from the guilt of sin. And the practical effect is that a believer will be more and more sensitive as he or she matures to that sin when it comes about and quick to discern the symptoms of the impurity. Being tempted is not a sin. Giving in to the temptation is the sin. Uh, and it is not that the pure in heart are never tempted, and we know that it's not that they never sin, but rather that they turn away from the temptation instinctively. Beyond that, the poor in heart will see themselves as ambassadors for Christ. Therefore, they will have a compelling desire to avoid casting even a shadow over the name of the God-man who bore their sins for them. The word heart is cardia, from which we get the word cardiac. Uh, Brian here is a cardiologist, a heart doctor, okay? Uh, and figuratively, uh, this is the inward drive and motive, the center of one's personality, the core values, if you will. The word concord means to have the same heart or values to be at peace with another. And we sometimes say somebody has a brave heart or a kind heart. We might say he has an evil heart. We're not saying he did something good here or something bad there. We're saying that we're, reflect, we're talking about one's personal character, uh, the very essence of that being. And because of that core, we anticipate a certain response, a reaction, certain behavior. And I think if we look around in the world today, we know that there is a clear problem with hearts. Of course, this is not, nothing new under the sun. We've had that forever, but it's just so much more obvious today. So how do we clean up hearts? And I want to return to something I mentioned last month uh, about the effect of law. Uh, now, there's a saying out there that some of you may have heard and maybe even you used, and I was in a line at a reception one time when I heard a conservative legislature defend, legislator defend his vote in favor of the lottery and gambling with, you just can't legislate morality. And if I'd had my wits about me, I would have asked, Senator, uh, would you ever vote for a bill that you did not think ought to be the law? And I suspect he would say, well, of course not. Then I would point out to him, well, if you believe you've always voted for what ought to be the law, then you were always voting for your morality, right? Because ought or should is an expression of one's morality. Now, obviously, foundational core values of a nation 
as reflected in our law, affect a culture. And every piece of legislation contains someone's view of what ought to be or ought not to be, hence their morality. And all laws, no matter how trivial the subject, reflect some worldview. Beyond that, though, the law tends to normalize certain practices and views and assimilates that view into what could be called the public morality or cultural values. As mentioned last month, we should never get up, give up seeking and promoting laws and policies that come closest to biblical values. However, despite the importance of the role of law and the standards it sets in society, on the individual level, law cannot force a heart to be good. It cannot force somebody to embrace biblical morality. Clearly, while our Christian foundation has made our lives much better than many, if not all, other nations, it has not spared our nation from the evil and sin of darkened hearts. That's why the body of Christ is so vital to our nation and the world. Both Peter and Paul refer to the church, the body of Christ, not as a physical building, but by analogy as an edifice, a structure that's made up of what Peter calls living stones. And if those stones are living, they have hearts. To the extent that each heart is pure, the body of Christ will be pure. And that sets a standard for the community and the nation. At least it sets an example. Despite our real weaknesses and our faults, the rest of the world still looks to America as the standard setter. Some today say that America has never been good. It's always been evil. And it's true that America has never been pure. Why? Because we have free will, and America is filled with sinners. Uh, but that's true of all nations at all time throughout history. Oppression, murder, greed, slavery in its many forms has always existed everywhere as it does today. And this should not surprise anyone. We should not labor under any delusion that there is some sort of utopia out there where this does, that does not include all this sin. At the same time, we cannot conclude that all people are equally sinful. Yeah, we're all sinners by God's standard of perfect righteousness and justice. The difference is that some sinners have an anchor, a landmark, a lighthouse that convicts them of their sin and points them back to what is good and pure, our Father that we find in His Word. Uh, Christians recognize their sin, but they don't accept sin as inevitable. Uh, they know that Paul has told us no temptation has overtaken you that, that is not common to man because God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to resist. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Jesus makes it clear that it's not enough to clean up an, our act on the outside. He said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Jesus did not come to simply make us nicer and more attractive, not just to make us outwardly compliant and good citizens, but to change the hearts of sinners like you and me. Now, would we have a stronger culture if 
we had no or very little murder, adultery, and other sins. Well, absolutely. But did Jesus only tell us to do away with sin-like murder on the outside, overt sin? Later in Matthew 5, Jesus equates anger with murder and lust with adultery in the heart. You see, the heart is where you are at your core, your hidden thoughts and feelings, which only God knows. And what you are on the invisible root matters as much to God as what you are at the visible branch. Man looks on the outside because that's all that man can see. But God looks at the heart. Our response to all the challenges and issues of life come from the heart. Matthew 15 tells us, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. Jesus did not come into the world simply to rid us of bad habits, but rather to purify dirty hearts. What are the characteristics of a pure heart? The closest Old Testament parallel to this beatitude is uh, Psalm 24, where it says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Now, in the roots of our legal system was a concept called the clean hands doctrine, which means that one could not successfully sue another for a wrong if that plaintiff, the one bringing the complaint, had acted wrongfully or unethically in the same transaction. You can see what David means here by pure heart in the phrases that follow. A pure heart is a heart that has nothing to do with falsehood. It is painstakingly truthful and free from deceitfulness. I think on your handout there's some reference to love without wax. Kind of weird, huh? Well, let me try to explain. A virtue related to purity of heart is sincerity. Uh, 1 Peter 1 says, since you have in abundance to the truth purified your soul for the sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Sincere comes from the Latin sine, which means without, and sere, which means wax from which we get the word ceremony. When you sign a letter sincerely, you're literally saying without wax. Uh, In the ancient world, pottery was touched up with wax in the cracks, giving an appearance of perfection and wholeness to fetch a higher price for the dishonest potter or the seller. But when the pottery was subjected to any heat, uh, the deception would be sadly revealed. So a really good pot without cracks was therefore sincere without wax. Insincerity or deceit is what you do when you will or desire to do one thing, but you will that people think you're doing another. Okay? James addresses this aspect of impurity uh, in James 4. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you men of double mind. Notice that both David and James refer to clean hands and a pure heart as preparation for drawing near to God so that you can see him. But notice how the impure are described. They are double-minded men. That is, they are men who will 
two opposing things rather than one. Uh, James 4 goes on to say, unfaithful creatures, literally it's adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So a double-minded man has a heart divided between the world and God, like a man having an affair while pretending to be faithful to his wife. Purity of heart, on the other hand, is to will one thing, namely full fidelity to God. Jesus explains the scope of a pure heart in Matthew 22. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not part of your heart. Not with a double or a divided heart, because that's impurity. A pure heart means no deception, no double-mindedness, no divided allegiance. Paul tells Timothy that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So the aim of the pure heart is to align itself with the truth of God, magnify the worth of God. And if you want to be pure in heart, you pursue God with clean hands, sincere faith, single-mindedness, and with a whole heart. Now, this beatitude goes on and says that those who are pure in heart see God. Now, since God is invisible, what does it mean to see God? All right. First, to see God means to be admitted to his presence. After the plague of darkness on Egypt, Pharaoh expressed rage at Moses when he said, Get away from me, take heed to yourself, never see my face again, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses responded, As you wish, I will not see your face again. What Pharaoh meant was, I will never allow you in my presence again. So true disciples of Christ desire admission to God's presence in eternity. But secondly, uh, seeing God means to behold his glory, experience his holiness now. John 14 says, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you, you will see me talking to his disciples. The world sees with physical eyes, but the pure in heart have the special privilege to see with spiritual eyes. So seeing God is one, an intimate fellowship with Christ because the heart, the inward man, is at peace with him. It's desiring and understanding his will, which gives purpose to our lives. It's the ability to see life as part of God's plan, not mine, and sensing his acceptance and comprehending what it means to be forgiven. Unbelievers miss this reality of God. Third John says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. So the pure in heart are sure of God. They are conscious of his leading in their lives, even in the midst of pain and disappointment when others are despairing and chaos and confusion. Finally, seeing God means being comforted by his grace. Again and again, the psalmist cry out, Hear, O Lord, when I cry. Be gracious to me and answer me. Hide not your face from me. Our spiritual sight in this life comes to us through both special revelation, the Word of God, and general revelation, 
the creation where we see images and reflections of his glory. We hear echoes of God in nature like thunder and lightning and roaring seas. And we see the majesty of his creation in the mountains and in the stars. However, there will come a day when we will stare at God's face. David said in Psalm 19, As for me, I shall in eternity behold your face in righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul alluded to our present and future seeing. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. We see and experience God now with a direct experience of his glory, and we will be helped and comforted by his grace in eternity when we are face to face. Now, uh, we a lot of times talk about striving to do this or that. Are we to strive to see God? Well, Hebrews 12 says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So there's a real purity and a real holiness from seeing God, which we are to seek. Now, none of us can say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. Uh, But Jesus tells us in Matthew 19 that with men, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So to sort all this out, God creates a purity for us and in us so that we can pursue more purity. And by his grace, we must seek that gift by praying with David, create in me a clean heart, O God. And we must look to Christ who gave himself for us to purify for himself a people. And the response of our heart to Christ's creation and his sacrifice is single-minded faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When the question of circumcision of the Gentiles arose in Acts 15, Peter responded, God made no distinction between us, Jewish believers, and them, Gentiles, but purified their hearts by faith. So God is really the one who purifies, uh, and the instrument with which he cleans is faith. Therefore, we are to trust in the Lord with all our heart. We are to exercise our will for this one thing. We pursue this and we will see God. So why would anyone want to will to be impure? You know, uh, it's beyond debate that any impurity I allow into my body can cause disease or slow degeneration. Think about persistent drinking or smoking. But it's not just physical. It's impure sounds and images that corrupt the mind and ruin lives. Porn is one of the largest industries in the world. Skin sells. Why? Uh, Do we, as followers of a pure Christ, allow pictures or music to take our minds to places where it should not go? Are we being faithful to, in truth, to our life partner, including a future, even unknown spouse? Do you see your body as a temple entrusted to you by God for a life used to serve him most effectively? Now, these impurities and others are obvious. There are many subtleties of life. Deception, bitterness, anger, envy, greed, pride, These are all conditions of the heart that take us away from the only source of true and infinite love that we have. So we all need to take an honest assessment 
of the condition of our hearts. And if you and I truly want to see God, we will be seriously seeking purity in heart. None of us know how much time we have left. Uh, Perhaps that is reason enough to become much more serious about our relationship with God, to purify our hearts that we might see him now and in eternity. Those who are pure in heart desire peace with God for themselves and others. Therefore, they pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So we're going to move on now to the next beatitude in in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. In my lifetime, uh, the unpopular Vietnam War was a catalyst for a youth movement protesting for world peace. And it was exemplified in a song by John Lennon called Imagine. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can, no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will live as one. Ironically and sadly for Lemon, uh, he failed to, to take account the nature of man, the sin nature in his imagination. He was later murdered by a Beatles fan disgusted with his lavish lifestyle, perhaps his failure to share his possessions with the brotherhood of man. I don't know. On a lighter side, uh, some of you from that era may remember the bumper stickers that said, Visualize World Peace. Okay, anybody remember that? Okay, there's a few. All right, well, uh, I once uh, saw one of the greatest bumper stickers ever, uh, and it was on the, the window of a Volkswagen van, which is kind of the quintessential hippie van from the 70s. But it was, this was in the 80s or 90s somewhere, and this van was painted solid pea green, Okay. And uh, in the window was a bumper sticker that, with the same color, and it said, visualize world, W-H-I-R-L-E-D, peas. Okay? Now, this was a reformed hippie who had a sense of humor. So, <laughs> the history of the world as a whole has never really had any sustained peace. You know, Lenin expressed a noble but unattainable goal short of the millennial kingdom. The Bible in our experience tells us that, the, that we have free will and a sin nature. Therefore, the world uh, to live is one. In a world to live as one is truly in one's imagination only. Jesus told his disciples in Mark 13, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Hey, I want to make an advertisement here. Uh, We of all people in the United States have the special privilege of having easy access to some of the best historical information of the 20th century. The World War I Museum in Kansas City, the Eisenhower Museum in Abilene, and the Truman Museum in Independence, Missouri, 
all provide fascinating information about the world conflicts of the 20th century and the extremely difficult decisions faced by our leaders. For you and your young people to understand that history and the sacrifices made uh, may be very helpful in combating the illogic and the blindness of our day that fails to take into account the nuances of the culture and world situations and the very, very difficult decisions faced by decision makers at that time. So parents, I strongly recommend that you take advantage of those resources close at hand, as well as Steve Eilis' American History class, while you still have the opportunity with your young people so that they can gain some perspective on the causes and the consequences of conflict. Uh, young people will not appreciate any peace that we do enjoy until they know how difficult it is to attain and keep. You know, war in recent years has become much different. You know, we fought a, we've been fighting against religious terrorists spread throughout the world, defined neither by uniforms nor by boundaries, uh, bent on elimination of not just Jews and Christians, but even different factions within Islam. It's becoming harder and harder to tell the good guys from the bad. Uh, and who would have thought just a year ago that a world power, a member of the United Nations Privileged Security Council, would invade a neighboring country on the thinnest of pretenses? Who would have imagined that we would be talking right now about the possibility of war with China? You see, peace is a very, very difficult thing to maintain. The Vietnam conflict brought the peace movement in the 60s and 70s and Lenin's song. The difference between a peace activist and a biblical peacemaker is that the former only cries out for peace. The latter, the peacemaker, knows from where peace comes, which is the prince of peace. On a lower, more personal level, the principles of biblical dispute resolution are vital for any conflict, whether it's within companies or squabbles at home. Like any other truths, they have to be studied, understood, and applied. Uh, followers of Christ have the ability to be filled with joy and peace. We have the duty to preserve the unity of the Spirit within the bond of peace, as well as the duty to pursue righteousness, love, faith, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And I mentioned earlier that in the previous Beatitude, purity is a prerequisite. James 3 says that the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Also, we cannot just take a naive view of peace. There will always be misunderstandings, sin, and conflict. We also have to value peace with uh, other uh, and balance with other biblical principles. In Ephesians 4, Paul exhorts us to tell the truth in love. Then in verse 25 of that chapter, Paul admonishes, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, I've sometimes called our current environment the post-reality age because it seems that people want to create their own reality despite basic facts of life and even science. Yet, I think most people still see truth as a necessary part of life, even if they're not willing to face the wrath of those who create their own reality. So all this confusion raises a tough question. 
Is it your fault when you stand for truth and it's a cause of division? If you have alienated someone and brought their anger down upon your head because you have done or said something which is true and right, is it possible that you have ceased to become a peacemaker? Well, sure, if you don't speak the truth in love. Those who know me well are aware that I struggle with this. I may or may not be right, but if I communicate in a harsh spirit, I can expect more, not less, conflict. But assuming a humble and a loving spirit, the reaction of another to truth is beyond our responsibility. Paul said, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That's Romans 12. So Paul admits there will be times when we stand for truth in love, but it will be impossible to maintain that truth. For example, he says to the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 11, I hear there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, he would not have said that if the genuine Christians should have compromised the truth in order to prevent divisions at all costs. It was precisely because some in the Corinthian church were genuine, spoke the truth, that some of the divisions existed. In Luke 12, Jesus says, Do you suppose I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. This is a hard one. Christ made clear that in the very real sense, he would not bring peace but division because the truth will divide, and you can't help it. We all have to decide what is true. The definition of decision is to cut away something in order to keep what is left. And we see this more and more as our government and our culture becomes less and less tolerant of the name of Christ. In other words, Jesus tells us in summary, we must love peace, work for peace, pray for your enemies, do good for them, long for the barriers between you to be overcome, but you must never abandon your allegiance to me and my word, no matter how much animosity it brings down on your head. You're not wrong if your life of obedience and your message of love and truth elicits hostility from some. Now, we want to talk now about the sons of God have the character of their father. And peacemaking has applications on several levels. And Matthew 5, 9 tells us that people who have become sons of God have the character of their heavenly father. And there's several references to that throughout Scripture that are on your sheet. Most important of all, we know that God is a peacemaker. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So he made peace by the blood of the cross, even though by nature we are moral criminals against God because we've committed treason. We're all worthy of death by hanging. Nevertheless, God took our necks out and inserted the neck of his own son in the noose and pardons any who lay down their stubborn independence and come to him admitting, I know I cannot earn my salvation. The whole history of redemption, climaxing in the death and resurrection of Jesus, is God's strategy to bring about a just and a lasting peace. Therefore, God's sons are that way too. They have the character of their father. What he loves, they love. What he pursues, they pursue. 
You can know his sons, his children, by whether they are willing to make sacrifices for peace the way that God did. By God's grace, we criminals were redeemed and set free from sin and our sentence brought from rebellion to faith and made into children of God. We're given a new nature, the image of our Heavenly Father. And if he's a peacemaker, his children who have his nature will be peacemakers as well. To put it another way, as Paul says in Galatians 4, since we are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And therefore, Paul also says in Romans 8, all who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. And being led by the spirit always includes being, bearing the fruit of the spirit, and the fruit of the spirit, one of them is peace. Our salvation from beginning to end is all about grace. But Jesus calls each believer to be a peacemaker. Here's where the rubber meets the road. And we go about the business of peacemaking. Jesus helps us understand sonship also in Matthew 5, starting at verse 43. I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. So, uh, in Matthew 5, we must be peacemakers to be called sons of God. In verse 45, we must love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us if we would be sons of God. And it appears that one characteristic of God's sons involves the acts of love by which we try to overcome the enmity between us and other people. So, what steps can we practically take? Well, the first thing that he mentions in Matthew 5 is prayer. Uh, Pray for those who persecute you. Pray what? The next chapter tells us in what we call the Lord's Prayer, essentially pray like this. Pray that you and your enemy would hollow God's name. Pray that God's kingdom would be acknowledged in your life and in his or hers. Pray that you and he would do God's will the way the angels do it in heaven. In other words, pray for conversion and sanctification of your enemy. The basis of peace is purity. Pray for yours and pray for hers that there might be peace. In Matthew 5, 47, Jesus gives the other specific example of peacemaking love in this text. If you salute or just greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? In other words, If you have a conflict with somebody and then you greet that person with a cool hello, or worse, you cross over the other side of the street or the other side of the hallway so you don't have to to greet them, are you not nursing a grudge? Don't feed the animosity by ignoring and avoiding that person. That's the natural thing to do. But that's not the demonstration of the spirit of a peacemaking God who sacrificed his son to reconcile us to himself and to each other. Peacemaking tries to build bridges to people. It hates animosity. It seeks reconciliation. It desires harmony. On the lowest level, the peacemaker uses what may be the only courtesy the enemy will tolerate, a greeting. The peacemaker looks an adversary right in the eyes and said, good morning, John. And he says it with a longing for peace in his heart not with a phony gloss of politeness to cover up anger or resentment. So we pray and we take whatever practical steps we can to make peace beginning with something as simple as a greeting. But even after that, 
we don't always succeed. Peacemaker who longs for peace, works for peace, sacrifices for peace, but the attainment of peace just simply may not come. Again, Romans 12 is very important at this point. If possible, as far as it depends on you. So don't allow the failure to reconcile the relationship to be on account of you. Finally, we all have a tendency to balance guilt in conflict. If the other side is 51% wrong, we might find it convenient to ignore our 49. So Jesus told us to remove the impurity from our own eye before we try to remove the impurity from another. So if we wish to be peacemakers, we will confess our 49 or our 10 or our 1% of fault and allow the Holy Spirit to deal with the remainder on the side of the other. At this point, I want to address maybe an elephant in the room. It might be large, it might be small. Uh, You know, if we continue to teach and continue to listen to teaching, but we do not apply it to ourselves, I'm not sure why we're here. So, if I may, let me be direct. Uh, many, Many of you will likely have no idea what I'm talking about, but over the last few years, Lion and Lamb has been blessed with the addition of several great families and individuals. Yet, a number of great families and singles have left Lion and Lamb. Some use COVID as a gradual off-ramp, while others left more abruptly. Now, I'm sure there are many factors. In fact, for all I know, I could be one of those. But overall, this is not about Lion and Lamb getting as many seats filled as possible. We all want folks to worship where they can best serve. However, I want to suggest that some departures may be due to unresolved conflict within lion and lamb and within the larger body of Christ. And to the extent that that is the case, I simply want to say that if the teaching of Jesus applies to us, we will take it seriously and we will be true peacemakers. Enough said. Some uh, commentators state emphatically that Matthew 5, 9 only refers to making peace between people. And and let me say, I understand that only the work of Christ on the cross pays the price for our sin, and only the Holy Spirit draws others to Christ. In other words, we should take no credit for saving anybody. Colossians 1 tells us, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So, I believe that serving as a tool in making peace between God and man is an intentional goal of a peacemaker. In fact, it might be the primary application of this verse. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, but also gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become 
the righteousness of God in him. So in reality, no peace is possible between nations, between ethnic groups, uh, or individuals without a right relationship with God. So when mature believers help the lost understand and accept Christ's reconciliation, or you help weaker, weaker brothers or sisters to walk in the light of God's ways, these folks are peacemakers in the highest sense, in, in my estimation. Now, this can happen on the mission field, but it can also happen with some of you in everyday life. You know, you might bring peace to prisoners or women in crisis pregnancy or to a drug addict, to a prostitute, to a family in need, to fellow workers, neighbors, and friends. This peace is brought with the sacrifice of the spotless lamb, the one who knew no sin but loved us enough to suffer and die as payment for our sin. So it goes without saying that we are to love one another, and that requires forgiveness to bring about peace. So to wrap up, I know there are distractions. It might be a fussy baby. Uh, you might be wondering what you're going to do for lunch. Hopefully that'll be a potluck. Or you might have an important meeting coming up this week. But right now, may I ask you to stand and recite in unison and try to focus on the spirit that is conveyed in the following passage that it might apply in your life. Okay. Together. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body.